Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title originally was The Question of Whether God Exists. And so this is a talk that I had given before for other chapters of the Thomistic Institute. But Ben said he thought it'd be really interesting to plumb the depths of the first way argument. So what I'm giving is sort of a, a meld of the two talks. I'm going to give a little background about the methodology that Aquinas uses to prove God's existence. And then we'll get into the so-called first way argument. I should note that, as he noted, I am a professor of philosophy. Aquinas by profession was a theologian. And so we might ask, well, what are we doing here? And what's his consideration of philosophy and philosophical arguments? Aquinas, like other medievals, viewed philosophy, the process of natural reasoning and scientific demonstrative argumentation as the handmaiden of theology. Theology bases, it's argumentative too in his mind, but it bases its arguments from premises drawn from faith and revelation. Philosophy draws its premises from experience and reason alone. And so frequently Aquinas will offer distinctly philosophical arguments regarding God, regarding other issues that theology examines as well. And he sees this as philosophy in the service of theology. So what we're going to be doing is looking at some arguments that he offers, or notably the first way argument for the existence of God, that is a distinctly philosophical argument because it does not presuppose any faith tradition as such. So the question is, okay, if we're going to prove God's existence, how do we go about doing that? Aquinas is famously known as an Aristotelian. He calls Aristotle the philosopher because he thinks so highly of Aristotle that he views Aristotle as the archetype of how one should go about philosophical, any philosophical investigation. And following Aristotle, Aquinas observes the following. Now, I'm going to be drawing from these snippets of quotations that are going to appear on the screen in the handout that I provided for you guys. Uh, but I'm not going to reference where it is. You can take it home and look it up later. Um, suffice it to say, you'll see in one text that he notes, following Aristotle, that we can't know about anything that it is unless in some way we know about it what it is. Consider, if I were to say to you, or if someone were to ask, hey, does the Campophilus Principalis exist? You might very well say, I don't know, what are you talking about? Now, if you knew that the Campophilus Principalis is the ivy-billed woodpecker, ah, now you've got a frame of reference. So one might ask, well, whether this bird, which is, has been for a while on the endangered species list, does it still exist or not? But to ask that question in a meaningful way, we need to know what it is that we're asking the question about. Well, I'm bringing this up because the contention is that we can prove the existence of God, Aquinas contends. But here's the issue. 
he tells us in a number of places that in this lifetime, our intellect cannot penetrate directly to the essence of God. In short, in this lifetime, we cannot know God's nature. We can come to know the nature of a bird because we can observe a bird, the nature of a dog because we can observe a dog. We can observe their behaviors and learn something about what they are. But as regards God, well, traditionally, he's viewed as this immaterial transcendent being. I don't encounter that in my daily life. I cannot know what God is. So how do we prove the existence of a being? And we don't know what it is that we're trying to prove. It seems as though the task before us is harder than trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's as if I said, Try to find something in a haystack that's as big as the universe, and I don't even know, I'm not even going to tell you what the thing is. So he points out, we cannot know whether God is unless we know, somehow know about him, what he is. But what is he? Well, there's a solution to this problem that Aquinas points out. We don't need to know perfectly what it is that we're searching for. We at least need to know in some confused way what it is. You know, when we have full knowledge of what a thing is, we can give a definition of it and we can examine it further. And that's the best account is if we can give a definition of a thing, we're capturing what the thing is. We can't do that with God, but we do find another account of a thing Aquinas says besides the definition, whether we're examining God or anything else, there can also be an account explaining the meaning of the name. Consider this. Physicists, considering the mass and energy that's observable in the universe, say what we're observing can't be accounted for or that mass and energy can't be accounted for by the observable matter, there must be some other kind of matter. They call it dark matter. What is dark matter? They don't know. But they can they have a name for what it is they don't know, and they try to find out. Is there something out there that exists that's accounting for this missing mass? So. Physicists don't know what dark matter is, but they know what they mean by the name. And Aquinas says, in a parallel way, we don't know what God is, but we've got this name, God. Is there something out there that lines up with what we mean by the name? That's what the task is. So now we've shifted the issue. Granted, we don't know what God is, but what do we mean by the name God? And, you know, that's a controverted point because polytheists think there are many gods. You know, ancient pagans thought gods had bodies. Christians think that there's one god. God is immaterial. Muslims would say, some at least, that Christians say they believe in one god, but their god is a trinity. So that's a kind of polytheism. Even atheists who say there's no god have to mean something by the word God to deny that there's a God. And given by what their understanding of God is, well, I'm happy to say to some of those atheists, 
I don't believe in the same God that you don't believe in. We need to form a proper concept of what we're talking about. We can't be simplistic here. Aquinas tells us the following. We can't know what God is and prove his existence given the nature of God. You know, there's a famous philosopher, St. Anselm, who tries to prove the existence of God by saying, well, this is what God is, something than which nothing greater can be thought. Now, that, that's a very powerful notion, and it's trying to capture something about what God is, but even that's going too far in Aquinas' estimation. We can't start out by talking about what God is, but we can start out by talking about what we mean by the name. And the best we can do is the following. Aquinas tells us, this is what those who use the name God intend to signify, something that is above all existing things. It's a transcendent being. And it's the cause of all existing things. And as such, it is removed from all existing things. It is, in a way, unlike them, if it is the first cause of all things. This is how Aquinas is going to try to prove the existence of God. We don't know what God is, but we know that there are these things in the world that are caused. We call them effects. And we can reason from effects back to a cause. And this is his basic methodology. Aquinas offers a number of arguments for the existence of God throughout his career. Most famously in his work, The Summa Theologiae, The Summary of Theology, he offers five arguments that he calls the five ways. All of them follow the same basic pattern of reasoning from effect to cause. Consider this. If you hear a knocking at the door, you know that that sound isn't sufficient to have caused itself. There must be something to account for that effect, the cause. Aquinas tells us the following. From any effect, you can demonstrate that its proper cause exists. So I hear a knocking at the door. There must be something that is a door knocker. Now notice. In reasoning this way, I'm not claiming that the door knocker is any person in particular, much less even a human being. I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is, but I can know this much. There is a cause of that sound. If the effect exists, the cause exists. Why? Because effects depend upon their cause. So. The cause must pre-exist the effect. And so what we find is lying behind all of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God, all the different approaches that he takes, this general pattern, this general line of argumentation. The presupposition is that, look, we don't know what God is, but we can look at certain effects and reason back to a first uncaused cause. And that's our stand-in for God. We don't know what he is, but we know we can show that he is. If the effect exists, the cause must exist, and we're going to try to show you that there is a first uncaused cause. This is, in Latin, the quid nominis of the word God. 
It is what the name means. Aquinas tells us the name God is a name that we use to indicate a haver of divinity, a haver of a divine nature. Again, we don't know that nature, so the best we can do is start with the effects to reason back to the cause of something that's a haver of whatever nature it is that's capable of causing these effects. Logicians will call this in the line of argumentation the major premise in the argument. The minor premise is, well, he's going to try to prove to us something is a first uncaused cause. So if a god is a first uncaused cause and something is a first uncaused cause, we can conclude that something is a god. This is the basic approach that he's going to take, as I say, in all of his arguments for the existence of God. <coughs> we grant the truth of this major premise. We need to prove the truth of the minor. So the second premise, that's what each and every one of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God is trying to justify. That yes, indeed, there is something out there that is a first uncaused now we're going to look at the prime mover argument, the first way argument for the existence of God, which starts with a particular effect, as we're going to see in a moment, motion, to reason back to a first cause of motion. But before we do that, I want to point out, notice the wording that I gave. You know, in Latin, there are no, grammatically speaking, what are called articles, a uh, or the. So how do we read it in the text when he says something is Deus, God? You know, our minds immediately jump, given his bigger theological project, to think God with a capital G. But a better reading is to say, no, he's doing a more minimalist approach here. We're trying to prove that there's something out there with a divine nature, the sort of being that's capable of being a first uncaused cause. It's a minimalist approach. Once he's done that, then he can move forward to try to prove that, hey, and guess what? There can be only one such being. But this is part of the methodology of logical demonstration, because notice this. You can't prove an individual. You can't prove, you know, chair, that chair. Prove to me that that chair exists. Well, I see it. it, it it's there. You can't prove it. What you can prove is whether or not there are any ivory-billed woodpeckers. Maybe we're not observing them right now, but maybe reasoning from effect back to cause, we can say, oh, this kind of egg that I found in this kind of nest that can only be distinctly built by this kind of bird, and we heard this kind of sound, the effects reveal the existence of the cause. And so what Aquinas is trying to do is try to prove to us that there's something out there that everyone would grant that if that thing exists, it's so transcendent, and it's the cause of all things. That's truly what we would call, under ordinary circumstances, a divine being. So with that in place, let's look at his application of this approach in one of those famous five-way arguments, the so-called first-way argument. And I've got it for you on the handout, but I'm going to reproduce it line by line and walk you through it on the screen, Aquinas starts out by telling us there are five ways to prove that there is 
again, given my translation, a God, a divine being that's out there. Now, it's worth pointing out, sometimes people hear him saying there are five ways, as if he's saying there are five and only five ways of proving God's existence. Well, that's clearly not his intention to present it that way, because in a number of other works, in a number of other locations, Aquinas offers other ways. So really, he's just trying to say, I'm going to focus in on these five approaches as most accessible. And he says the first and most clear way, the most manifest way, is taken from motion, the phenomenon of motion. Here it's important to be aware of Aquinas' terminology and the philosophical presuppositions. Because we hear the word motion nowadays, and we're probably going to think in terms of what Aquinas would term local motion, change in place. <coughs> but for an Aristotelian like Aquinas, that's only one kind of motion. The idea of motion for him is broader than that. It's roughly synonymous with the word change. Any kind of change is what he would describe as emotion. So we want to keep that in mind as we're listening to this proof because it's very easy to fall back into the trap of thinking of this only in terms of moving from here to there. If you go to the beach pale and you get a tan, it doesn't happen instantaneously. There's a process. There's a motion, the process of tanning. If you put a pot of water on the stove and it's room temperature, you bring it up to boiling temperature. There's a process. There's the motion of heating. If you have you know, a baby, and over its lifetime, it grows in size. There's an increase in size. That maturation of growth is, again, a motion. And Aquinas is starting out with this first way argument and this effect. So we want to come back to that point. He wants to point out that things are in motion. It's obvious that things are in motion, that things are changing. We see it all around us, which is why I have that little gif there on the screen. We can see motions occurring all around us. With that laid out, I want to point out the argument that we're going to look at has two fundamental stages. In the first stage, Aquinas proves to us that whatever is moved, whatever undergoes change, has to be moved or changed by something else. And once he's established that, then he'll move on to say, OK, well, maybe the mover of something is itself moved. And maybe that mover was moved. But you know what? There cannot be an infinite series of movers. Well, if that's the case, then the series would have to be finite. And that would mean there is a first. And if it's first, that means it's unmoved. And so he's going to conclude that there must be a first unmoved mover. That is, in turn, the cause of motion in everything else. It is entirely unmoved. And so motion is its proper effect. Or the effect of motion that we observe leads us back to some being that merits the name God, in the sense that it is first uncaused and transcendent. 
So with that in place, let's get into that first stage and follow Aquinas line by line, word for word. He tells us the following. He leads with the conclusion of the first stage. So he front loads it. Everything that is moved is moved by another. But that's what he wants to prove to us. And now he's going to give the evidence for that. Why is that the case? Well, because nothing is moved unless it is in potency to that to which it is moved. And here we want to learn a little more of the Aristotelian jargon that he employs. Potency and act. Act is the complete state of a thing, to actually be such. Potency is the capacity to attain that completed state. In a little while, in a few lines, we're going to see Aquinas giving the example of potentially hot wood. Wood that could be hot, that could be on fire. So time one, we find it under that state. Time two, it's undergone a change. It's actually on fire. It's, there's been a process here. Nothing is moved from the state of potentiality. Well, nothing is moved unless it's first in potentiality and then later in act. If we said at time one, hey, I went to the beach and I was tan, and then when I left, I was tan. You mean you were tanner? No, the same degree of tan. You'd say, well, what was the change there? There's no change. <coughs> so first, there's got to be potentiality, a lack of the actuality, and then later on, the actuality. By contrast, Aquinas says, something brings about motion insofar as it is in act. So the most obvious example, and the one he'll give, is say, well, what's actually on fire will light what's potentially on fire on fire so that it's actually on fire. For something to be moved from a state of potentiality to actuality, it needs to be actualized by something that is in itself in act. So the potentially hot wood is made actually hot by the actually hot. Now here is a stumbling point for a lot of people when they first read this because they think, okay, nice 13th century guy, Thomas Aquinas, that's all well and good. But don't you know there are other things than fire that set things on hot fire that are not themselves actually hot? I don't know about any of you, but when I was a little kid, I'd go out on a summer day with a magnifying glass. And I would set things on fire, not ants, but pieces of paper and stuff like that, uh, with a magnifying glass. Now, the magnifying glass is not actually on fire. So what's going on here, dummy Aquinas? Well, no, he's not dumb at all. He gives a very clear example by saying what's potentially on fire is made to be actually on fire by what's actually on fire. But he doesn't mean to restrict it that way. As he makes clear in other texts, the relevant sort of actuality that he's talking about could either be what he calls formal actuality, where it's one to one. Hot thing that's on fire makes potentially hot thing actually hot. But he also notes it could be, in his language, virtually. It could be virtually in act. Now, here we want to pause again, because we hear the word virtual, and we think virtual reality nowadays, as opposed to what's real. That's not how he's using the term. The Latin virtus means power, indicating that it has the power to do such and such. 
what's the point that he's bringing across? The point is this, that it's not any old object in this example that can set the potentially hot logs on fire. It's something with the relevant actuality. You need to have an actual magnifying glass with the actually right curvature of the lens, and it needs to be actually sunny that day so that the two together can actualize the wood. Or I was thinking today also about those, you know, those hot pocket things that are like little packs on a cold day. And, you know, it, it's cold. Your hands are cold. You want to make your hands warm. You use your cold hands to smush up this packet. And there's this chemical reaction that goes on inside. And now it's actually hot. Okay, but it wasn't one hot thing making a cold thing hot, but you had to have the right kind of actuality of stored energy that's in the chemicals that are in that packet. And your hand has to actualize it by crackling it in the right way so that you've given it the opportunity to actualize. The key takeaway isn't that it has to be a one-to-one -one actuality, but that whatever is in potency and then later on actualized requires something that's in act in the relevant way. So here in this example, we have a mover that is virtually in act. It has the relevant actuality that gives it the power to actualize that effect. With this in place, he clarifies what he means by motion or what it is to move something. To move, he tells us, is nothing other than to reduce, to lead something from a state of potency to act. If some of you have encountered Aristotle's version of the prime mover argument, because Aquinas is being influenced by Aristotle here, Aristotle presents a prime mover argument in his work, The Physics. I'm not going to go into the details of that argument. There are parallels here. But there's something very different as well, because in Aristotle's argument for the prime mover in the physics, the involved definition that he gives of motion there, accounts only for physical changes. Aquinas's definition here is broad enough in scope that it allows for the possibility to account for even non-physical changes. So that if it turns out there are immaterial beings out there, we call them angels, Aristotle called them the separate substances, that themselves act on the physical world, well, those too might undergo changes of the will, changes of the intellect, but Aristotle's argument can't account for those changes. Aquinas can with this new metaphysical definition of motion to say any change entails a reduction, a leading of the subject from a state of potency to a state of act, and there's got to be a mover to account for that. And I'm belaboring this point just to bring out that what Aquinas is trying to get to with this argument is some first cause of motion that is entirely unmoved. It doesn't undergo any physical motion or any non-physical motion, any non-physical change. He's trying to get to something that is truly first. But 
we still need to finish off this first stage of the argument where he's trying to say everything that is moved is moved by another. Something in potency cannot be reduced to act except by some being in act, as he's already indicated. You either have to have the actually hot match or you have to have the actual magnifying glass with the actual sun out. And here's where he gives the example on his own. A fire makes wood, which is potentially hot to be actually hot. And in this way, fire moves and alters wood. Okay, so far so good. But why is it that the thing can't move itself. And this is what Aquinas wants to answer next. He tells us, it is impossible that something could be in potency, both in potency and in act. Now we're going to see this language. This is impossible. This is not possible coming up a couple more times in the argument. And again, if we don't know any better, this could sound like hand-waving. Ah, that's impossible. That can't be the case. Let's move on. But we want to be aware that this language of impossibility is significant in the argument and in other observations by Aquinas. It isn't hand-waving at all. When Aquinas tells us that something is not possible in these sort of metaphysical arguments, he's using the language of impossibility in the strictest way to say that it violates a fundamental law of reality. I don't know if anybody here has heard of the so-called principle of non-contradiction, which holds that something cannot both be and not be. Something cannot both be and not be. Something can't both exist and not exist. You can't both be seated and not seated. You can't both be here and not here. Someone might say, okay, well, I wasn't here a little while ago. I'm here now. I won't be here soon. Ah, well, we had the qualifier. You can't both be here and not here at the same time. And someone might say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I get what you're saying. Um, but what about this? I'm both here and not here because sure, I'm here, but your lecture is so dull that I'm zoning out half the time. So I'm both here and I'm not here where Aristotle and Aquinas following him said, ah, we add the qualifier in the same respect. Something cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same respect. So metaphorically speaking, you're not here if you're zoning out, but literally you're either here or you're not here at this moment. It can't be both. Why am I going into this level of detail? Because he's telling us that it's impossible for something to be both in potency and in act, in the same respect. The log can't both be on fire and not on fire. It can't both be actually hot and potentially hot. Now, maybe in different respects, maybe the first half of the log is actually hot and on fire, and the second half hasn't caught on yet, but that's in different respects. It cannot both be in potency and in act at the same time in the same way, only in different respects. For what is hot in actuality cannot 
be simultaneously hot in potency, although it is simultaneously cold in potency. Take away, it's impossible for something at the same time, in the same way, to be both mover and moved. To be moved is for it to be in a state of potency, and that potency is being actualized. But if it's in potency, it can't actualize itself. It can't move itself. Whatever is moved has to be moved by another. Now here again, we might pause and say, wait a second, we see things moving themselves all the time. I'm moving around right in front of you, or this horse is moving itself. What about that, Aquinas? What does he point out? It's when we have something like an animal that is, in a certain respect, a self-mover, we have to add that that's in a certain respect. Notice, the whole horse is in motion, but the whole horse can't be moving the whole horse at the same time in the same way, because then it would be both in potency and in act at the same time in the same way, which violates the principle of non-contradiction. When we have objects that in a certain respect move themselves, it's a part that's moving the whole. It's the brain sending a signal down to this nerve, sending a signal down to this muscle, sending a signal down to this leg, and this leg is pulling forward, and then that leg is pulling forward, and the parts are moving the whole. And eventually, we have to get outside, in this case, the organism, that horse is running toward that bag of oats. Notice, we want to be aware with this line of reasoning that Aquinas is not limiting causality here to what Aristotelians call efficient causality, where you've got a, a maker, an agent, if you will, a sort of causality where there's like a pushing. There's also another kind of causality that Aristotelians talk about, final causality where an object of desire attracts things. The horse is moved by the object that it observes. It wants those oats, and that sets a chain of reaction so that the desire causes it to start initiate motion toward that bag of oats. So his conclusion is everything that is moved ultimately is moved by another. Okay, so much for stage one. We can do follow-up with questions and discussion during Q&A. For the interest of time, let's move on now to stage two of the argument. We grant what he's shown so far. Whatever is moved, whatever undergoes change, has to be changed by another. But what if that other is itself changed? What if it is moved? If therefore that by which the thing is moved is itself moved, well, whatever is moved is moved by another. Then it would have to be moved by something else. What if that thing is moved by something else? We've got a chain of movers, moving movers. Maybe this goes on to infinity. Aquinas says, no. It is not possible to proceed to infinity here. I say, well, why not? Infinity sounds really powerful. So that's pretty good, right? And he says, well, if 
if there were an infinite series of movers, there wouldn't be a first mover. These two lines here, as I've highlighted them, are another stumbling block for people when they read this argument. Because first of all, it could sound kind of circular. Why, why can't the series be infinite? Well, if it were infinite, there wouldn't be a first. Why does there have to be a first? Well, it can't be infinite. And round and round we go. But that's actually not what's happening here. And again, it can sound like mere hand-waving. Ah, it's not possible. But remember, as I highlighted before, this language of not possible or impossible in these contexts means there's some violation of the principle of non-contradiction in the claim that there could be an infinite series of movers. So we need to bring out what that contradiction is. Why is it contradictory to talk about an infinite series of movers. In fact, generally speaking, Aquinas' position is there cannot be something, so, uh, an infinite series of causes. The notion is incoherent. It's like square circle. Now, it might not be obvious to us at first, but what I want to do is, the time remains, try to bring out the contradiction involved in this claim that there could be an infinite series of causes or an infinite series of movers. To begin to answer the question of why that is, we need to clarify what sort of series Aquinas is talking about. Because a common reading, which is a common misreading of the first way argument, is that Aquinas is arguing back to the recesses of time to a point like the Big Bang and God is tipping over the first domino in the domino chain, and they all fall down after that. And I'm here to tell you that's precisely what he's not arguing. Aquinas is not rejecting this. In fact, we're going to see in a moment, Aquinas would say, hey, it's metaphysically possible that that domino chain could be tipping down for all eternity. We're not going to be able as philosophers to prove whether or not that's the case. So he's talking about a different sort of causal series than this. So we've got to figure out what is going on here. So I'm going to give you a big table here to draw a distinction between two different kinds of causal series. One in Latin is called a paracidens causal series and the other per se. I'll clarify those terms in a moment. I'm about to violate one of the cardinal rules of PowerPoint here, which is always keep your presentation simple. So apologies up front, this is gonna be very involved, but I'll build things in slowly. And the idea is we wanna have a visual frame of reference and comparison to see the similarities and the differences between these two kinds of causal series. What he's calling in Latin a paracidens causal series, we could describe as an incidentally ordered series of causes. This is the sort of causal series our mind probably goes to first. I call it a tempor temporally sequential series in which the causal series takes place over a period of time. Apologies if that's too small. I thought I was going to have a bigger screen. But you know, consider a timeline down here. In this sort of causal series, subsequent causes, the later causes in the series, perform their activity, engage in their causality after the prior ones have acted. Consider down on my timeline there a dog. We'll call him Fida. 
Who generates his offspring, Rover? Who generates his offspring, Spot? Who generates his offspring, Rex? And we could go on and on in the series. Like our domino chain. In this sort of causal series, the subsequent causes, the later causes, the son, the grandson, the great-grandson, they depend on the earlier causes to come into being, to change, etc. But notice this, the later causes don't depend on the earlier ones for their very causality. Case in point, Fido, the grandfather of Spot, could be long gone from the face of the earth. His son Rover might be dead too. Spot is still able to generate Rex. So yes, Spot needed Rover to come into being, but he doesn't need Rover to continue to exist, and he certainly doesn't need Rover, Fido, or any of his ancestors to generate his offspring. So the prior causes, the earlier ones, are only, and here's where we get the name, are only incidentally related in the causal series. It's only because Fido happened to have generated Rover, who happened to generate Spot, that Spot, who now exists, is able, in turn, to generate Rex. As I like to say to my students, you know, this is precisely why, you know, Spot doesn't depend on his father to generate, and this is precisely why, you know, parents of adult children will say to their kids, when are you going to give me grandchildren? Because <laughs> it's not up to them. It's not in their causal power. They can guilt their children into trying to give them grandchildren, but they can't make it happen. So the series as a whole is incidentally ordered. It's only because of this happened and that happened and it happened, but there's no essential connection. And Aquinas' point is that there's, we can analyze this causal relation and show the necessary connection in the moment that Spot generates Rex, and we can analyze that one, and we can analyze that one, but over the whole arc, there's no essential connection. And so what Aquinas says is we can't reason back to a first in this sort of causal series. In principle, it could be infinite. It wouldn't violate the principle of non-contradiction for this sort of causal series to be infinite. And in fact, Aristotle himself thought the universe was eternal. It has no first moment in time. So that it's going on for eternity, and it goes back into the infinite regresses of the past. I'm putting question marks there. Aristotelian physics suggests there's no first moment in time. Now, we talk about the Big Bang today, but you know there are some physicists who would say, well, there's the Big Bang, but maybe that's the result of a big crunch of a prior universe. So maybe there have been universes expanding and collapsing for all eternity. But Aquinas is saying, yeah, I can't figure out from this sort of causal series whether there's a first moment in time. And once he's proven God's existence, Aquinas thinks, well, we could talk about this during the Q&A, even once you've proven God's existence, I can't prove, we can't prove philosophically whether or not there's a first moment or no first moment. Because once he's proven God's existence, he's going to say, look, God is the author of time. So it's within God's power to create a universe with no first moment. The key thing is, once we've shown that this being exists, 
even if the universe were infinite in time, it would be dependent on God. It has its cause. So why do at least Christians believe that there's a first moment in time? Well, Aquinas tells us because of revelation. It's an article of faith. It cannot be philosophically proven. I'm not going to get into all the details about that, but it is worth bringing out just in the context of talking about this sort of causal series. Suffice it to say, all of his arguments that he offers to prove the existence of God that include an argument against an infinite regress of causes are talking about a per se causal series. We'll call this an essentially ordered series of causes. You know, this sort of causal series, unlike the last one where we've got a sequence over time, in an essentially ordered series of causes, we have a simultaneous series of causes. The whole causal series takes place at the very moment of causality. And here, I like to trot out my one metaphysical prop, my paperclip chain. Don't worry, I'm not going to do any magic tricks. But notice, how is the pen being held up here? Because of this paperclip. But that clip is up there because of that one. And that clip is up there because of that one. And that one is up there because of that one. Notice, they're all acting as causes, and they're all acting as causes simultaneously. I don't want to keep holding this, so I'm going to put up, there we go, my paperclip chain on the screen. So what I'm bringing out here is that all the causes in this series act as causes simultaneously. And in this sort of causal series, the subsequent ones, the ones that are lower down in the chain, depend on the prior ones for their very causality. So unlike here, where the grandson is not dependent on the grandfather to generate the great-grandson, here, the lowest clip is dependent on the one above it, on the one above it, all the way up the chain. I'll give another visual example. Choo-choo train. Notice the caboose is being pulled by the car in front of it, which is being pulled by the car in front of it, in front of it, and so forth. All of them are acting simultaneously. So granted, yes, the train is moving over time across the track, but at any moment, freeze frame, we can say, what are the causal relations? That caboose is dependent on the car in front of it, dependent on that, dependent on that. They're all acting as causes simultaneously. Simultaneously. In this sort of series, subsequent causes I'm bringing out are essentially related to the prior ones. So the whole series is essentially ordered as causes. In fact, you could view it as one big cause to explain why the caboose is moving, one big cause to explain how the pen is hanging up there. And Aquinas' contention is that their interrelationships reveals the need for an origin. And it's this sort of series that he's talking about that claims cannot be infinite. The question is, why not? Again, infinite sounds really powerful. As it Buzz Lightyear says, to infinity and beyond. So, it, you know. 
God is talking about, talked about as an infinite being with infinite power. That's not the relevant kind of infinitude here. Here we're talking about an infinite number of causes to bring out the problem and the contradiction with this notion of an infinite per se causal series. Consider that the last cause, the one down here that's holding up the pen, is insufficient to bring about the effect. If you could talk to that paperclip, maybe this is an outdated reference, but you guys remember that annoying paperclip that used to pop up on Microsoft Office? Clippy? If you could talk to Clippy, he would always pop up at inopportune times. You'd get him off the screen. And you'd say, how, I don't know if you guys can see his eyes blinking there. How, how are you holding up that pen? And he would tell you, well, I'm an insufficient cause. I can't do it myself. What about these causes up the chain? Well, these are intermediate causes. They're in between the last cause and the effect and the one above each other. Each of those is insufficient, right? Because each of the intermediate ones is dependent upon the one above it. Now, here's the point. If we had, I'll say it, I'm also insufficient. If we had an infinite series of per se causal series, we'd have an infinite series of intermediate causes, which is to say, we'd have an infinite series of insufficient causes. The whole series would be insufficient. It'd have no foundation. And so this is why Aquinas says it can't be infinite. It must be finite. What's the contradiction? Well, the contradiction is this. We know there's an effect. The pen is hanging there. There has to be a sufficient account for how it's hanging there. If you tell me that it's an infinite series of causes, you just said, I'm giving you an insufficient account of causality. There'd be no effect. There'd both be an effect and no effect. But there is an effect. So it can't be infinite. The series has to be finite. And so Aquinas concludes there must be a first in the series, which is itself uncaused. We can discuss this more during the Q&A. But for now, let's wrap up the implication. Oh, and then here, in a qualified sense, my hand would be the first cause. Of course, you know, I'm not sufficient entirely dependent on other things, we keep going up the chain. Actually, we'll get to God. In terms of motion, Aquinas is saying, come back to where we left off. It's not possible to proceed to infinity in a series of causes causing causes, a per se ordered series of causes, because there'd be no first mover. And the result would be there wouldn't be any other movers, since secondary movers move only because they are moved by a first. And here he gives another example. He says, consider a staff, put on the screen, Gandalf staff, that does not move except by being moved by a hand. And here, in other texts, he'll say, consider a stone, we'll add the stone in, moved by a staff, moved by a hand. Notice it all happens simultaneously. It is an ordered series of causes. So let's bring out again the problem. If we went to infinity, 
the violation of the principle of non-contradiction that would come out is that without a first mover, there'd be no motion. But there is a motion. Remember, that's how we started the argument. We observe motion all around us. It can't be the case that there's both motion and no motion. So there must be a first mover and not an infinite series of movers. Let's wrap this up. Aquinas says, therefore, one must arrive at some first mover that is moved by no one, by nothing else. And this everyone understands to be a god, a divine being. Now, at this point, particularly if you're a believer, you might say, huh, is that what I understand to be a god? Now, we want to clarify that, again, in each of these arguments that Aquinas is offering for the existence of a god, he's going for a minimal threshold. He's trying to prove the existence of a first uncaused cause. That's it. However, from there, there are corollaries that can be drawn to bring out more. And in the interest of time, I have another slide, and maybe during the Q&A, if people are interested, I could throw up what I have on that slide. We can, but we can discuss some of the corollaries. Suffice it to say, for this being to be a first mover, it has to be unmoved. If it's unmoved, it's pure actuality with no potency to it. In short, in the metaphysics of Aquinas, this is going to be a being that is pure beingness. And if there is such a being, there could be only one because there would be no way to distinguish a being that's pure beingness from another being that's pure beingness, infinite, unlimited existence. It then falls to the believer to say, huh, does this line up with what I call God? Because the philosopher cannot prove to the believer, hey, this is what you believe in. It belongs to the believer to assent to what the philosopher has then shown. However, I'm very sympathetic with this line of reasoning because as a Christian, I follow what God revealed to Moses about his name. I am who am. Not I am this or I am that, but I am. And by implication, we can bring this out during the Q&A, Aquinas is saying, a being that is a first mover, entirely unmoved, pure actuality, is a being that's pure, unlimited beingness. I'll stop there, and we can take it from there during the Q&A to discuss more. Questions? Thoughts? Yes? So I got a question about stage two. Maybe I heard it wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but did you say that causality is not infinite because then each would be an insufficient cause? Um, what I was saying is the causal series, the chain of causes, when we're talking about an ordered series of causes, that chain cannot be infinite. So we're not talking about infinitude of power, it's like a quantitative infinitude. And what you'd be saying is, remember, each of those intermediate causes in my chain, I won't keep the pen on there, but if each is 
each of these is insufficient on its own to hold up the bottom because I let go, you know, false. If each of these is insufficient, if it went on infinitely, the whole series would be insufficient. And, and it would be one, think about it this way. What's the old line? A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. You're saying every link is weak. <laughs> it would be infinitely insufficient. So an insufficient cause cannot make an effect? Right. So right. if all of those chains are insufficient, then like, say you have three chains, or say you have four chains, and then the second chain, doesn't that second chain have an effect on the third chain because it's also holding it? Say that again, sorry. So like say, I'm, say you have like, you have your four chains. Yeah. The two middle chains, or I guess the second and the third chain, doesn't the second chain have an effect on the third chain because it's holding it? Yep. So all of these as chains are in, insufficient. If I stop holding it, it falls. Yeah, and then I, even that, you know, in a, I'm in, in a qualified way a first cause, but then Aquinas will push it back even further and get into his metaphysics of existence. I depend on my form and my matter. I depend on my existence. There's got to be a cause of my existence. You can keep pushing it up, but you can't keep going, going infinitely. There's got to be a first. And if it's first, it's not part of the chain. It's uncaused, and then we get back to the first in the series. Yes? So you mentioned you have another slide you can show us. Yeah. So basically, I'll just zip through the corollaries. There's a first mover. If it's first, it's entirely unmoved. And it's unmovable. If it's unmovable, why is it unmovable? It has no potency. It's not capable of being actualized. It's pure actuality in Aristotelian language. Nothing of our experience is like that, right? Everything other than God, Spencer, has some degree of potentiality to it. Corollary three, now we get in the heart of, this is getting to the weeds of Aquinas' metaphysics. Everything is composed of its nature, its whatness, its essence, and its existence. So you and I exist, we're existing humans, but we don't exist simply because we're human, because there don't have to be humans, just as there don't have to be dodos or dinosaurs. So in his metaphysical system, he's saying, uh, there's a composition in beings, actual beings, between their nature, their essence, and their existence. If this being has no potentiality, then it's pure actuality, it's pure subsisting existence. The Thomistic term is essay. So it's pure beingness. And there's no way to distinguish this being from that being if it's pure beingness. You know, we can distinguish a human from a horse because you and I exist in a human way. A horse exists in a horse way. These are different limited ways of existing. But if you've got just pure beingness, it's an infinite mode of existing. There's no way to distinguish one from another. And so that's where I was saying, if we get there, surely we've got something divine. And then he can argue from there that it has other perfections like pure goodness, pure wisdom, and so forth and so on. But notice the argument itself is a very minimalistic, argument, just trying to get you to a first uncaused cause. And from there, we can deduce these other attributes. Okay. Yeah. Sir, is the concept of free will not possible with first A cause of I. That's a great question. Tell me a bit more what your concern is. I think I know, but I want to hear. Sure. So I, um, you know, in my group as 
everything predetermined, uh, all my actions are predetermined by God yeah. at the beginning of time? Or do I have the choice to alter the, the course of time story uh, by my actions? Yeah. So I was wondering if um, it appears like both of those camps are kind of explained with Praxis and then further. Right. Yeah. So let me, let me answer it sort of in reverse order. In reality, around us, we've got both kind of causal series always at work, right? Um, now, uh, so reality is we're giving slice analyzations, right? We're saying let's consider this causal series, but there's a lot of interactions at any given time. Some of those activities entail human free will. Aquinas is definitely a proponent of the fact that we've got free will. However, when we make a choice, we move from a state of having not yet chosen to choosing. So first I have the potential to choose to move my foot forward, and then I choose to do it. So there is a kind of, it's a non-physical motion, but if we go by that metaphysical definition that I highlighted, the reduction from potency to act, there is a broader sense of motion, right? There needs to be a mover. So Aquinas will say that yes, ultimately, God is the cause of the motion of my will, but in such a way that he's enabling my will to freely choose. So it still allows for free will in that respect, in terms of our discussion of motion. In terms of the other topic that you were just talking about, if I understood correctly, the concern, well, but, you know, God knew, well, one, sometimes people say, well, if God knew, foreknew what I'm going to do, how am I free? Because he knows in advance what I'm going to do, what I'm not. Aquinas would point out, you know, if God is this unmoved mover, he's not in the timeline at all. He's outside of time. It's only things that are capable of undergoing the relevant kind of motion or change that are on the timeline. So with that said, yes, God is an intelligent being. He knows everything we have done, we're doing, we will do, but all in one simple glance. Not, oh, I know in advance what you're going to do, and therefore it's foreordained. He knows you're doing it in the past, in the future, now. Does that yes, sir. help so much? So a different dimension? Yeah, it's a different dimension. Yeah. Yes? Sir, so I noticed with your paper clip chain example that like as you have more and more paper clips in the chain, the chain will link above it, but it has to be stronger to hold to all the paper clips beneath it. Yes. And so I was thinking, like, does this prove causal, like, obviously the chain has to be like stronger, more powerful. Okay. So like, does this argument like offer I think one could infer that. Um, certainly, if we're reasoning back to something that is um, entirely unmoved and pure actuality, this is a different kind of being. And from there, he can argue that, well, if this is a, a being that's pure, infinite actuality and it has power, its power would be infinite. So it'd be omnipotent in that sense. Um, and to be able to be the source of motion of ultimate source of motion of all things, and also to have created them and you know give them all of the other attributes that they have, it certainly would have to be the most powerful being that there is. Yeah. And so it would require a higher cause. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious as to like, because I've, I've heard other like Thomistic Institute like videos about like the apostatic union. How is it possible that something that is uncaused can be united with something that is caused? In other words, like, God holds himself 
in, in existence yeah. and is human nature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess in a simple way. I know that's very simple. That is a great question. This is where I punt and say theology is above my pay grade. Uh, you know, there it, it is a mystery, right? Um, so the hypostatic union, for those who are not familiar, is the doctrine of the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, taking on a human nature. There's a divine nature. There's the human nature. It's one person. And the question is, what are, what are the causal mechanisms in that? If, if God I, in divinity is changed, how can he be united with something right. that is called of an existence, that is caused and does change? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can only, uh, you know, s- speculate and say, remember, in his divinity, he's outside of time. So in a way, from all eternity, he's chosen to be united at these points in time or from this point forward. And that's the most I'm going to do. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't want to lapse into heresy. <laughs> Inadvertently. <laughs> yes? Yeah. This is true. What is his next step towards yeah. the Christian God? Yeah. So he moves. This is in this one work, the Summa Theologiae. He's proven in the second. He, if you're not familiar, he divides this up in terms of what are called questions. So it's in question two that he looks at the existence of God, and then he moves on in three. It's God's simplicity is what comes next, and then he moves on from there to try to deduce other divine attributes. And there's a famous approach that he has to investigating philosophically in the service of theology what we can infer and deduce about God in light of the fact that, given what we said before, we don't know, we still don't know what God is, right? So he says, in this lifetime, we can only know that God is and what he is not. So he provides this threefold way of Um, investigating God and having meaningful language about him. The first way is the way of causality. We name the cause from the effect. So these are things in motion. There's got to be a first mover. He's the prime mover. Uh, He also calls him the first efficient cause, the first final cause, and so forth. Um, And then from there, once you've proven that, you can then say, well, if he's the first, he's unlike the effects. And then we can go on to say the ways in which God is, this first cause is not like them. And that's where he deduces attributes such as God's incorporeality, God's immateriality, God's atemporality. Notice these are all negative notions, not in the sense of bad, but in the sense of saying what God is not rather than what he is. But, you know, scripture and tradition also talk about affirmative names about God, that God is good, God is wise, God is true. And Aquinas says, there is a basis for us philosophically to deduce these attributes of God, namely, the summit of this line of reasoning following the way of negation is to say that if this is an infinite being that's pure actuality, he is perfect. I don't know God's perfection. What do we mean by that? He is not lacking in any respect. And then there's this axiom of causality that Aquinas likes to trot out. Every agent, every maker makes something like itself. So whatever perfections God's effects have, God must have but in a higher way. Now, does that mean that we can call God swift like a cheetah? 
uh, or strong like a tiger. No, because those perfections of a cheetah or a tiger are physical perfections that imply the limitation of matter. But what are called transcendental perfections that are found in every being, goodness, truth, unity, uh, wisdom, that, that, that's a pure perfection found in some, but it doesn't imply the limitation of matter. These we can say of God, but again, in a higher way. So it's not as though, oh yeah, there are a lot of good things in the world, my mom, the flag, apple pie, and oh yeah, God, as though he's yet one more good thing. No, he's goodness itself. But then again, I don't know goodness itself. What I'm saying is he's not good in the way they're good. He's good in a higher way. He's good in an infinite way. Um, does that go to your question? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we can move up that ladder, and then we can infer more and more, all the while acknowledging that I still don't know what God is. I know the fact of the matter. That God is good, and he's not good like those things. He's good in a higher way. Yes? Sir, I believe I, I didn't grasp a key portion of uh, the argument. Okay. And, um, as Aristotle said, it is certainly possible that there is a, a universe of source that could be without a first mover. It could be infinite. What is... Um, oh. Yeah, I probably didn't say it as clearly as I should have. Aristotle wasn't saying there could be a universe without a, a first cause that he calls God. Aristotle argues for a prime mover. And Aquinas is building off of that argument. But Aristotle argued that the universe is eternal. There's no first moment in time, there's no last moment in time, and it, but it always requires the prime mover. Aquinas is agreeing with him on that basic point, although he's disagreeing with him saying, well, no, there is a first moment in time, but I accept that as an article of faith. He's going beyond Aristotle and saying, God isn't just the cause of motion. There are other arguments that he offers to show that God is the cause of the very existence of things. He's the giver of being. And that's to make things ex nihilo, out of nothing. So Aristotle's universe, it's just a brute fact. The universe exists. But it's eternally dependent on a first mover. Aquinas' first mover, it will turn out, can do so much more. Yes? Uh, so I think I would follow up on the same question, more or less. Um, why can Aquinas claim that he can first say causal theory versus prefer absolute? How can he say, like, okay, this is the causal theory that exists that we're defining from this argument? Okay. So what he's saying is we encounter both kinds of causal series in our experience. The one I'm going to focus in on is the sort that will show that it must have a first cause. Um, and so that's why he's focusing in on that. So yes, both kinds of causal series are going on in the world. But the Parachidens causal series, the analysis of that kind of series reveals nothing about whether there's a first or not the analysis of a per se. So he's just saying, let's analyze a per se causal series. And just pick one, it's like a magician, pick a card, any card. Pick a causal series, any causal series, that is an ordered causal series, and we have to show that, we will show that there can't, it can't go on infinitely. Oh, Professor, thanks so much for the, uh, the talk. It was very in depth, yeah. it was very well explained. Um, 
So there's, I think this argument is more misunderstood nowadays, and oftentimes it's kind of breezed over in maybe like a philosophy of religion class or something yeah. that matter. What do you think some of the stock objections you might hear towards the argument, and how do you refute that? How do you refute that? Yeah, the I think you probably already would have. Yeah, I think some of the stock objections are there's there's hand waving in it when he just says ah, it's impossible. They don't understand what he means by impossible in terms of the principle of non-contradiction. Um, another stock objection is people are thinking, they think that he's, his examples are simplistic with fire, generating fire. Um, as I tried to bring out, uh, the relevant point is what's the source of motion has to have the relevant kind of actuality to actualize what it's moving. Um, they, there's a common misconception that he's only talking about motion in place. Uh, yeah, so, so those are some of the common misconceptions about the argument. And then they, then they think that he's arguing back to the big name. And that's precisely what he's not doing. So you have to look to other texts and be more familiar with his thought as a whole to have an appreciation of what's going on. And that's what I hope to show today. Well, thanks so much for coming out, guys. Um, Hope you really enjoyed it. Um, Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.